0: No Direction's Gen Con 2019 seminar coverage is brought to you by Roll for Combat's new Fall of Plagestone Pathfinder 2E actual play podcast. Featuring Stephen Glicker, Jason McDonald, Rob Tremarco, and No Direction's own Lauren Sig and Vanessa Hoskins. Find it and other Pathfinder and Starfinder podcasts, interviews, and reviews at rollforcombat.com. No Direction presents our Gen Con 2019 seminar coverage in partnership with Pazzo. We'd like to thank our seminar team, Lauren Sieg, James Ballad, Vanessa Hoskins, and me, Jefferson J. Thacker, also known as Param. We'd also like to thank Peyton Smith from Paizo for helping getting this produced. This content and more great seminar coverage, as well as Pathfinder and Starfinder content, is available at nodirectionpodcast.com.
1: Hey, everybody. Welcome to the uh, Adventure Design Workshop. Um, I am Ron Lundeen. I am a... uh... I'm a developer. I work primarily on the Ed Pathfinder Adventure
2: Path line. My name is Michael Sayer, and I am a developer who works on the Organized Play line. Hi, I'm Adam Daigle. I'm managing developer. i previously worked on
3: Adventure Paths, and now I'm heading the uh, Second Edition Adventure Line.
1: Right. So we've got uh, um, just a quick outline of what we're going to do. I think that uh, we've, we've all got some very deep adventure sort of design experience. Want to give you all some pointers in that regard. Uh, may take some questions in that regard, but what we want to make sure the last part of this is a real workshop idea What I want to do when we get to that is take ideas from you and put something and we'll put a put an adventure together in the course of this um, At least an outline of one um, the uh, uh, I'll go ahead and start off then uh, in addition to the adventure path development work that I do for Paizo I've been writing adventures for a good long time for a lot of different systems um, I'll also give a, a Quick plug for my blog at Runamuck Games, uh, runamuckgames.com. I I do some regular specific RPG adventure design tips a couple times a week, um, and that's uh, everything from how to you know, structure a compelling villain, um, and how important that is to an adventure, to the right way and the wrong way to draw angled halls. Um, so a lot of different uh, a lot of different topics there. Um, I think my my. My own favorite types of adventures to tackle um, are ones that have a, a clear villain identified early on, and the players go from seeing the fallout or effects of that villain to more directly confronting the villain to defeating the villain. I really like an arc that makes the players feel smart and successful, and I think going from... Being sort of the underdog to competence to feeling mastery in the course of an adventure, I think that arc does it very well. Um, uh, but that's what—that's that, my experience. Whatever.
2: Yeah. So, um, I really enjoy an adventure that uh, presents you with a villain who is not just too powerful for the party, but who uh, may be well-known, but is inaccessible through other means. This has especially been something that has been really uh, interesting and that I've really liked exploring a lot lately, is villains who are maybe politically protected or are protected geographically and figuring out how to how do we get there or how do we get the ability to confront this person without creating other uh strings of consequences um can be a lot of fun and can be an intriguing challenge for players i was talking about this earlier with someone and i compared it to the superman comic book arc where lex Luthor is president and what do you do when going after the bad guy directly makes you the bad guy (laughs) um so that's definitely been something that I have been um looking at a lot and enjoying from a story perspective uh in in recent months.
3: Related to the protected villain thing, one of the things I like is when the villain is very clear early on before the party has the capability to really take them on or they meet them in a different circumstance and then throughout the course of what they uh, throughout the course of the adventure realize that oh, this person I met before is actually the bad guy. <laughs> yeah, they're putting some,
1: uh, putting some clues to seed that early on is helpful. It goes back to what I was talking about, making the, making the players feel smart, right? If, if every time before the, you know, the first time they met this mysterious person, all the screens go staticky, and then they hear that there's been these crimes through spaceports all across the galaxy, and every time the screens go all staticky, they're like, wait a minute, we met that guy. We, you know, we've got some clues to go, and then they go to assault the lair, get some information, and everything goes staticky around them. Like, oh, this is the, the person, right? As you can see it, a lot of things about, about a villain early on, characteristics, without
2: having that direct confrontation. Yeah. And part of kind of deciding exactly how you're going to seed clues like that and how you are going to uh, get to that point with the villain is also going to require you as the GM or the adventure writer to know how long the adventure is actually going to be, right? Because if it is a one-night game that you expect to last about four hours, you're going to have a very different pacing than if you have a six-month arc of adventures that, uh, that are going on, so... Um, knowing where your adventure begins and ends and how to get there is probably the most important step maybe not as important as picking the villain first because the villain is going to tell you a lot about uh where the adventure needs to go and what the adventure is going to be but it is probably the very next thing that you want to uh want to start looking at after that i would think
3: so you do a lot of org play dev. That is correct. Um, which does have these time constraints. Uh-huh. Um, when dealing with different types of encounters, how, what are some tips and tricks to stick to those constraints? Because a lot of role play is kind of unpredictable how long that's going to last, while combats are a little more certain. Mm-hmm. What kind of tools do you use for that?
2: Um, so one of the things that uh, that we do is we have very often a couple optional encounters that will act as kind of a dial for... This is a thing that uh, maybe I can plug in if I need to increase time because they've been buzzing through and they haven't been spending a lot of time role playing because they're really kind of focused on the more tactile aspects of the experience. Um, And then maybe it's something I can pull away if they have really been getting into the role playing and this is just going to cut into the time we have available to play with a combat encounter that is... Maybe fun and engaging, but not absolutely essential to the story. Um, the other thing that we have to look at is uh, how many opportunities for role play are in here and there's some dials to that. I there are adventures where sometimes you make a guess and you're wrong. You know, I've uh, I've developed an adventure before where when I played it, I was very worried about it running over because I play tested it a few times and every time my group was having really in-depth interactions with certain NPCs and I was like oh, getting kind of close to 6 hours maybe I'll trim a few things down, and then the adventure goes out to the wider world and people are like, oh yeah, this is really great, but it's been taking us about two hours to get through it. So um, one of the tools that a, a GM has at home that we don't necessarily have as people who create published adventures is you know your group and you know what their interests are and maybe how they're gonna react to things a lot better because you have that personal touch. And that's where you can really come in and kind of customize and uh, and adjust those slots to: Is my group going to maybe really engage in role play? Are are they people who are really going to lock onto NPCs and want to have engaging conversations? maybe i allow more time for that so are they more i want just enough story to tell me why i'm punching the thing in the face then maybe you work on more complex encounters and you keep uh the uh the npc sections and stuff down to a more manageable or, or more simple kind of uh amount of word uh word count
1: this is a good question to pull the room how many how many of you are gms
2: that's virtually everybody.
3: That's okay, kind of what I expected. yeah <laughs> okay, Awesome.
1: Uh, how many of you are GMs for a home group where you're making things up on your own? That's good. Cool. That's about how many of you are GMs, but you're running things that are otherwise printed. Actually, some overlap there, which is actually pretty neat. Yeah. Um, so I think the conversation specifically about know your own group is very relevant for everybody that put their put their hands up there talking about running for a home group. The, uh, uh, those of you who are primarily running things that are reprinted, uh, ab- absolutely the expectation from our side in producing them is that they will be customized as needed, you know, folded spindle mutilated as needed in order to make it work for your home group. Some of those things we try to specifically call out. If we put in one of our adventures, for example, uh, the puzzle. We know that not all groups love puzzles. so. Most of the time, you'll see a sidebar saying, "Hey, if my group doesn't like puzzles, do this instead, right? Because we we want to help you customize it for the uh, for the group you've got." <laughs> yes,
0: <Sorry. a> <laughs> don't we, Adam? <laughs> well,
3: I want to get I want to get this one thing out of the way real quick. Um, there is on the title for this uh, seminar there was two e in parentheses. Oh yeah. Um, what are from y'all's experiences of developing? What are or even writing adventures? What are some differences that, or what can, what does second edition bring that are slightly different, or ways that you need to change your adventure design at all, or do you at all?
1: Um, I I do. It is uh, one of the things I do. I do writing for a lot of different systems, and one of the things that I like to keep in the back of my head when I'm putting something together, when I'm determining as as Michael was talking about adventure length, um, how how much stuff does a player need to level in this? Mm-hmm i'm I'm personally much more a preference of milestone leveling over um, over giving xp um, i I'd like to think we are moving to a world where milestone leveling is the norm but we're not there yet and so we I make sure in my writing that i'm always for those people who are tracking xP it also lands that the milestone lands at the place where the xP would the thing that I found with um, that that allows Adventure creation to be a little more specific uh, with second edition is there there is room for just about 12 encounters and there's a table in the game mastery section of the new book that talks about The specific treasure and levels of treasure expected for each level. So that's a very handy tool to be able to say All right, whatever my adventure is going to consist of here's these 12 encounters I'm gonna assign the treasure this way and sometimes that's a thing that I do after the narrative is mostly complete and sometimes that's a thing that I do to help me describe the narrative that is if it's a, an adventure where you're going into a golem factory I know ahead of time I'm gonna pick a bunch of golems but if it's an adventure where you're going into you have to get through some caves to something else I'm not quite sure what's in them maybe I'll look to see what encounters make sense oh you know, there's gonna be owl bears and there's a bunch of hobgoblins with them right they're training them or whatever um, so that can go either way but the specific, Tools to help Game Masters build adventures in the new 2e book is mean, exceptionally useful.
2: Yeah, I would, uh, I would definitely agree with that. And um, I'm working on an Adventure Path volume right now that I don't think we've announced yet. So I'm just going to like leave that at that. But um, in the process of creating that, one of the things that was really fun was because the guidelines in 2e are very clear and straightforward about how things work. It allowed me to uh, more easily kind of decide where I wanted to place emphasis on certain aspects of role-playing in the story by giving the experience for completing that arc and interaction in a way that I could directly equate to kind of how many encounters worth of um, of combat would this role play experience be, which I thought was um, really handy because that's always kind of been a tool that GMs have in their toolbox. But I think to a certain extent you wing it a lot more in <laughs> in first edition and uh, and and other systems that I've played in. Whereas having that really firm set of guidelines made it uh, much easier to. Reward roleplay in a in a structured format that is predictable for me as the GM and that over time becomes predictable in a good way For the players as well as they get to understand like oh, okay. I don't I don't need to chase an experience point I don't need to be like oh man 10 XP and we hit the next level Let's go find some goblins that have <laughs> nothing to do with the story and uh, and take them out so we can get there Um I really love seeing what happens when a group realizes that the interactions that they are having with the NPCs and the story are just as valuable as what they're doing when they're swinging their swords or casting their spells.
1: Well, let me. I want to, I want to put some specific numbers on that. And, and I'm excited to, because for months and months, we've been working under the second edition rules. And now I can just say, right? I can just give <laughs> the information out, because everybody's got it. Um, <laughs> The way that the leveling works, no matter what level you're going from or to, you need a, the players need a thousand XP to get there. So whether you're going from first to second or whether you're going from 18th to 19th, it's a thousand XP. And the the amount of experience that monsters give you scale based on what level you are compared to what level they are. Um, in addition to that, what Mike was talking about, there are uh, some specific examples for how to give out. And 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 let me say that an average encounter that most of your encounters are going to be will give you. 80 experience points which is why I say it's about 12 to get to the thousand the the role-playing experience in the game master guide talks about giving out in units of 10 XP 30 XP or 80 XP and it's not an accident that that 80 XP is the same amount as an average encounter so when you build something that's the characters successfully negotiate a fancy dinner party 80 XP I mean, I could see a world in which every all your 1,000 XP for a level is comes from these types of things. The 30 XP is for succeeding at something that's maybe just a couple of skill checks or required a little bit of cleverness on the PC's part. We we give both of those out in the adventures that we do, and sometimes it'll be along the lines of, well, if they know that the if they know if they the PCs have figured out that the Duke is a bad guy, give them 30 XP. If they've also figured out that he's a Rakshasa, give them 80 instead of 30. Um, Our adventures don't give out the 10 XP very very often because that's really the you know, oh, you know, hey, the GM say, hey, that's a funny joke. Or, hey, you know, I didn't expect you to succeed, but you did. It's the kind of tool that GMs have, the, the 10 XP unit. But the units of 10 and 30 and 80 help us put some specific numerical um, uh, accomplishment awards around some of the things that in first edition, it was all we were story XP. And there was not particularly good guidelines for that. We'd give it out. We'd give out story XP for completing goals. But
2: now we've got that a little more more formalized. So um, you were talking about milestones earlier, and I think that that is another thing that is really great with um, the, uh, the way that we've structured the experience for 2nd Edition is that um, the XP is largely just a gauge of where you get to the milestones anyways, where you get to the thing that says, hey, you should be the next level now. And so being able to directly equate... A role-playing encounter to a combat encounter and plan that like you said you eventually you could in theory create an adventure that was entirely based on role-playing opportunities interactions and didn't have any combat at all i don't know that i would necessarily do that professionally i definitely have groups that i would do that for um because i have groups that love to just make friends with or negotiate with everything they meet, you know? Some people hear like there's a, you know, ogre with a blood-spattered club guarding the gateway to this, you know, abandoned castle and they want to charge the ogre. Other groups are like, why is he here? Is he alright? What's his motivation? Why hasn't he cleaned <laughs> his club? We need to have a conversation with this ogre and figure out why he is doing what he is doing. And so I I love having base tools that are very clear that allow you to immediately pivot to, oh, that's the kind of story we're telling tonight. (laughs) So, yeah.
3: Right, so some of the most successful adventures are um, really have a lot of focus on, like, hitting certain beats and having a certain cadence and, like, so it's not just, like, room, combat, room, combat, and stuff like that, and where it also brings the narrative forward. What are some uh, tools and tips that you could give on hitting the right pace
1: oh the uh the one of the things when well, I, mean, I mentioned you know that the, the structure is 12 encounters and not say 12 fights if i said 12 fights i didn't mean 12 fights because 12 encounters and then one of the things you can do to break those up is by having specific um uh you can have hazards of different kind we've grouped hazards generally to include traps and haunts and, and natural hazards like quicksand and the like um and then the role-playing encounters that we've been discussing and the key i think is to make sure that those are not only well alternating throughout so it's not here are eight fights and then four social encounters and then you're done um but there is also there also needs to be some level of player agency in the order in which they hit these in the course Mm -hmm. of the adventure and even if you know exactly where the adventure is going to start and how they want to conclude it. Maybe you have to build back a little bit. Here's before they confront the villain of the adventure. Here's two or three things they have to do before then. But the more flexible you can be with how your players approach all that middle stuff, the better. One of the things that I've, I like doing is putting all that middle stuff in separate little groups Right, the the players must go to these three locations in order to get their three clues. Each one is sort of its own little mini encounter area. They certain the players then feel empowered to go from whichever one they choose, address it in whichever order they want. And in fact, your players will often you know they'll do the first part of one and then decide to go do another and then maybe come back. The fact that they've got the ability to do that makes them feel like they're in more control of the narrative.
2: Yep. Um, and variety is definitely key, right? It's not just the spice of life. It's an important tool in designing an <laughs> an uh, adventure. Um I was working on an adventure where the story was very specific about who the bad guys were. They were a thieves' guild. They were a largely human thieves' guild. They were located in a very particular area. And so there were many things that because of the story and the setting needed to be true, but that also meant, okay, I need... Um, essentially one to three evenings worth of, uh, of adventure where there are very similar bad guys that the party is going to have to deal with and the location itself is kind of fixed. So how do I make this engaging? How do I make it so it's not just I move into a room, I fight three rogues, I move into another room, I fight three rogues, and, and what do we do? So I started adding in all kinds of traps Because it's a thieves guild, you know, Um, and maybe this door is trapped So now they're afraid of doors because the last time they opened a door a lightning bolt shot through the party But then in the next room the trap isn't on the door It's five feet in and it's a swinging wall scythe, right? And so now they're watching the walls and they're watching five feet in so in the next room It's a trap door that drops them to a sub level and now they're trapped inside of an Iron Maiden And what do I do with that? And so if you have any part of your adventure that is fixed by the story, you need to start looking okay what is not fixed what can I what can I play with what can I uh, do to make this interesting and engaging an environment is a big part of that changing the environment traps and hazards <clears throat> excuse me and and things like that um, and then that also plays into uh, what Ron was talking about as far as how the players need to feel like they are choosing where they're going they need to feel like they have some agency in it and so having bigger maps having more complex maps having secret doors having ways for the players to feel like aha we found a secret door and now we've gotten to this area and we didn't need to go through the thing it Even if the adventure is going to go in a certain direction, and by the end of the adventure, any party who plays it will probably have checked most of the boxes, as long as the way they checked those boxes and the way they found those encounters and moved forward is something that they had control over, you're going to find a really good level of engagement and excitement. And um, Especially if it's a published adventure, because then you'll have people who played it with different groups talk about... Oh yeah when we got to this area we did this and this and then another group might be like oh well before we even went there we had done this so we had an entirely different tool set one group might have started with Let's go fight the white dragon directly, and then see how that goes. And another group might have been like, let's go down into the salamander lair, and then we came out of that loaded down with flaming weapons and, you know, a fire giant's flaming ballista. So when we did the white dragon encounter, it was very, very different than when you did it without those tools. So, yeah.
1: And then invariably the group that's like, there there was a white dragon? <laughs>
2: yes, exactly. <laughs> but Adam, the, way,
1: the way you asked that question leads me to think that you've got some ideas as well of your own. Like, what's, what's, what's the, rather than room fight, room fight, room fight, what are the things that you've seen that are
3: improving? Y'all pretty much covered a lot of that. <laughs> um, but one of the things, and, and this is kind of going into what I was going to lead into my next question about different types of adventures. And one of the things with the right pace, like different types of adventures require different types of pacing. Um, Like an investigation, you need to make sure that it doesn't bog down. You need to approach it in a different way than something that's, you know, like maybe a more sandboxy thing and which leads to your thing about player agency is I really love sandboxy adventures, but I don't like any of those little groups of encounters to be useless. Like they all need to have either a clue or a nudge in a certain direction where the players obviously find that or they they feel like the nudge came from them instead of from the encounter so i mean that's in you need to put those types of things in a way that always points to at least two other things if possible in the sandbox Mm -hmm. so you make sure that you get all of them and it moves the narrative forward
2: yeah the um the every uh, every encounter needs to have a clue doesn't mean that every encounter needs to be tied to the big bad evil yeah, the person final at result. the end right but it does need to be something that moves the story and the narrative forward maybe the clue you find is not related to the uh, the end point of the adventure, but maybe it is related to taking you to some place where you will find that clue right. and uh, And it should all kind of flow naturally and take you there and especially in a sandboxy adventure you want to have interconnectedness it should kind of look like somebody trying to explain a conspiracy theory with all of those red <laughs> strings going from You know one part of the map to the other to the other to the other and those strings may look a little intimidating and confusing but when they are there and when they are laid out, they can actually create a really amazing, cohesive story.
1: Yeah, and I think that it's important that you don't feel the need to change those based on what your players have done. That is to say, if one encounter is at, if, if one encounter is at the Waxworks and another encounter says, hey, there's clues at the Waxworks, if they go to the Waxworks first, Get the clue, and then they go to the other encounter, and that points them back at some place they've already been. That's not useless. That makes them feel smart. Yep. That makes them feel like, oh, I'm oh, we're ahead. We're 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 we're, we're winning this. Um, so it's useful to have that kind of thing. That also leads into the 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 rule of three. Anytime you expect your players to get from one place to another, you have to give them three three different ways to figure out how to get there um it may seem when you're doing the design or you're doing your game prep that that's that that's overkill oh well, i'm like they're not going to need how what happens if they get all three of these things that's going to be uh that's going to be. your players are only ever going to see one but they're going to be skipping some of them without realizing it once they get the one then they then they're off to the races and that works but you have to you can't say if they succeed at this skill check that's when the adventure continues Um, What if they fail it, right? You have to have multiple different avenues to have them move along.
3: Yeah, never worry about having, or never worry about feeling like an encounter that provides a direction is redundant.
2: Yeah. Uh, Yeah, you really want to avoid choke points. If the only way for the story to move forward is for the party to succeed at a very specific skill check, especially one that they may or may not have, then that's then that's a bad thing, right? Because you're either going to need to wing it on the spot and then come up at that moment in time with a new way for them to get around if they are not capable of of overcoming this one hyper specific obstacle, or your story just kind of ends with and then the evil wizard took over the world because you couldn't figure out how to unlock an adamantine door. Great game, everybody. See you next week.
3: You did. You didn't have lore chicken farming. <laughs>
1: That'll teach you. Yeah, there's a real one of the most valuable skills. Both in GMing and then in, in in preparing written adventures, is learning how to fail forward, uh, which is to say, okay, if they don't succeed, here's a here's a thing that's going to happen anyway. It's going to make their lives harder and more interesting than if they had succeeded. But in either
2: case, it propels the plot forward. Yeah, it's it's almost like improv. You know, it's uh, it's <clears throat> never say no. It's a yes, but yeah. so. Yeah, um, I would say since we are talking about 2nd edition specifically, although this is true of any gaming system, another important thing that uh, you need to kind of have in your toolbox as a GM is knowing what tools are available to the party at the level you're telling the story and what stories are kind of appropriate for what levels, right? In Pathfinder 2nd edition, I believe it's is it 7th level or ninth level where flight becomes pretty common now? Um, mm. I'm going to say seventh level. Uh, <laughs> there we go. Seems you, about right. you You know that at this level, there are probably going to be enough tools available to all of the different classes that flight is something you can expect from the group. So, a 40 foot wide chasm is no longer a meaningful obstacle to the group because maybe the barbarian can like rage and grow dragon wings and fly over with a rope, and then everybody just shimmies across and. It was cool, but it wasn't really a challenge, right? There was a very basic tool available to solve this, so you need to tell new stories where uh, the tools that the party has available can be challenged and help them move the story forward, um, but are not just simple, okay, there's a chasm, we fly we're done next thing you you want to know what they have so that you can know how to challenge them and how to keep the story evolving and moving forward and being appropriate to the tool set that the party has available
1: and this is this is an important point talking about second edition many of the tools have changed there's no detect undead spell anymore right so there's no ability for somebody to automatically say well i wonder if you know this guy's a vampire like has my first level spell and you know handle that in addition we have used what we put across the board in the game um, a rarity system where rules are common, they're uncommon, or they're they are rare, and we and those a lot of those are designed to keep the things that are perhaps a little more uh, unusual or likely to to cause a certain type of a type of game to break down to make sure the GM knows that they're being included. Most of the abilities that allow you to read minds or talk to corpses, the sorts of things that can throw off an investigative adventure are uncommon in rarity. That's not to say don't use them. What that is is primarily a flag to say, hey, there are certain types of adventures that this type of tool will will make easier than you think. That's helpful because in, in Pathfinder First Edition without that rarity, Anybody could be picking up a mind reading or uh, a speak with dead type spell But now we've got talking corpse and things like that that are sort of at the GM's discretion to decide whether or not it is a tool that the players have
2: Well and that's and that's the big thing that that uncommon rarity that we introduced does right is it is not saying that You will not ever have this capability It is saying that this capability is something that you will gain through interacting with the story, right, at a point in time where it is appropriate for you to gain that ability. And it gives the GM a little bit of uh, of a dial on that tool to, um, to say, okay, I do want them to have uh, this scrying spell, which is an uncommon spell, because I want them to be able to scout ahead and look at things, but... I want them to gain that ability after they have gone and talked to this Diviner in his tower and and things like that because he's the one who specializes in this uh, this ability and spell. And so um, Rarity is almost a story pacing tool. Where, if you need to make sure that an interaction happens, and you don't want to just kind of railroad the party into the interaction, you can use that level of commonality to um, to encourage the party to make the decision to go seek out the individual or the item or the place where the scroll exists to um, to go and learn the thing. So what, now I.
1: I do want to make sure that we've got time for the workshop part of this, but if there are any questions before now, I take maybe you know a few ten minutes for questions, and there's a whole question process.
4: now that um social encounters are actually standardized, there's xP guide uh, guidelines for how to uh, reward those sorts of things. How do you deal with the discrepancy that still exists between killing the monsters and getting all their good stuff and talking past them and not having to expend resources, but now you're missing out on maybe their magical weapons or some cool magical items or consumables that they have.
2: So um, there are a couple different ways that you can tackle that. Uh, one of the ways is maybe a really positive resolution with this NPC leads to the NPC themselves rewarding the players. Uh, maybe it leads to the NPC offering really cool things at a discount maybe it leads to an entirely different packet of rewards that come from somebody who has said i want you to go do this thing and if you can do this thing without doing this other thing like i want you to go and get into the castle but there is an ancient necromantic ritual that surrounds this castle and every time you kill something that ritual becomes stronger and eventually the castle turns into a giant uh you know negative energy charged construct so if i don't have to deal with that later when it comes knocking on the door of my town i will happily give you this bundle of things um the other thing is there is kind of a hidden dial there right in that if i did not fight the monster i did not need to chug my healing potion therefore i did not need to receive an extra consumable to balance out what my load is so you've got a lot of kind of a broad spread of tools that you can use there to make sure that the party is staying on track loot wise um as they as they move through and use those alternate solutions that maybe don't just mean you're stripping all the loot off of the corpse of whatever you just killed
5: uh, so, actually, this is a fairly decent follow-up, I think, to exactly what we were just talking about. Uh, a lot of uh, what I noted in uh, Pathfinder 1st Edition with uh, adventure design was that you had to work around a lot of different variables, specifically around... Different play styles. Some of those include things like there were groups that would spam Cure Light Wounds Wands and they were at full health at every single comma, and there were groups that wouldn't, and you have to accommodate your adventures for both of those. What kinds of situations like that and uh, like weird tuning things for different play styles do you have, have you found you had
2: to do for second edition adventures? So, um, to a certain extent um, there are um, there are kind of some better safeguards in second edition than there were in first edition. Um, Unless there is a heavy time constraint on the the flow of the adventure, you've got X amount of time before the world blows up or the candle burns through the rope and the guillotine drops on the NPC you have or to say the castle turns into a big necromantic or monster. Or the castle turns or into a, into a, a monster. necromantic monster. Um there's a kind of a general expectation in in 2nd edition that you're probably going to be mostly healed up. You might burn through some resources, and the resources themselves are uh, controlled a little bit so that they're more predictable from the GM side of the screen about how many times the party is going to be able to activate a Cure Light Wounds wand for, or a heal wand uh, now. Um, so the game itself is uh, is a little bit better structured into helping guide you to uh, to what to expect and that allows you to kind of keep that moving forward and then if the party is tackling things through different ways that kind of change the resource expenditure that goes back to what I was saying before about how you have those those dials to adjust what the rewards are to to keep the party moving we've got
1: some of that I want to say the new edition specifically, outlines that expectation that the party is going to just buff themselves to the gills and then kick down the door and start a fight is not is not part of the game's expectation into i mean that's first of all that's expressly said and secondly a lot of the spell effects are at a much shorter duration now the last for a fight but the expectation is somebody's going to expend actions in combat to do that in order to in order to get that effect up and this is not i, I think i think that's a particularly this question is a particularly good one because it's not just what do we do as Adventure designers, when the, to accommodate different play styles, but all of you have to do that as well, right? A couple of your players, that could have a rough day at work, and all they want to do is bash some orcs. They're going to play very differently than if they want to, you know, really dig his teeth into some intrigue because they've been sort of craving the ability to have that kind of deep social interaction, you know, for the the last couple of days. So that type of balancing is something all of us have to deal with. Yeah. Um, this is sort of a sub question to the um, discussions of balance and length that you've been talking about. Um, I'm a GM and a game writer who has a really big problem with not being able to predict how long certain encounters take or how much time like the party will spend like on a certain difficult challenge. Um, What sort of metrics do you guys use um, to like measure like how long a fight will last or like how difficult it's going to be for your players?
3: I think one of the easiest or one of the best tools for that is actual playtesting. Like run the encounters through your friends, or I mean, that's even something you can kind of do yourself. Um, just see see how long a particular encounter will take, how long it takes to kill that monster, how many rolls, how many decisions you need to make to get through a certain puzzle. Um, those are things I use, and if you do that frequently enough, you end up being able to approximate a lot easier.
2: Yeah, I was just gonna say. Uh... Experience and experimentation are really the way that you get there because um, you, you can't math out on a piece of paper necessarily how long a combat takes. You can do it once you have the experience of knowing this is about how long this kind of turn takes, this is about how long somebody having this conversation might spend on it. But the only way to get those first numbers is to is to drill in and, uh, and play it out and see how it goes.
1: And it's, and it's never gonna be perfect. If I can yeah. just, let me just maybe make up an example that has no bearing in real life. But let's say you're an experienced adventure author, you put say a black pudding into a sewer <laughs> and the pregens that the players are given are given nothing but slashing weapons. Right? That's that encounter is going to be a lot harder than you ever expected when you were writing it. and had no idea what the pre-gens would be equipped with.
2: I mean, just I, I just randomly. Just hypothetically. That's right. Yeah. Uh, we have a question from Twitch user Tin for Lunch. Uh, what would be your thought process for developing cronies or unique mini uh, boss type characters for a grand encounter? So, um, one of the tools that we have in the bestry that I thought was really cool is there are a lot of monsters who have these kind of dials on them where it says, so skeletons. Skeletons are a really great example of this in the new second edition bestry. It says, this is everything that is true about a normal skeleton. Here are some things... Where one of them is usually true about most skeletons and it might be their bones explode when they die It might be that they are on fire or things like that. throw their heads. That's my favorite one Throw their heads at people. And so a lot of times taking whatever is a Kind of standard but more difficult monster for the the level and the adventure that um, the uh, the party is playing through and then Tagging on a couple things that change the way that it plays and interacts with the party can be really cool um, There is an NPC in one adventure. I've been developing who has like a meat hook and chain and can just use it to throw it out and hook people and draw them in close and most of the rest of the way that that uh, particular uh, character plays is pretty standard fighter type stuff but they have this one hook that then completely changes how they interact with uh, the battlefield and makes them very, very interesting. Hook? Literally hook. Okay. Yes.
3: Yeah. <laughs> I think as far as like uh, minions and cronies and stuff like that, one of the things that I'm, makes them a lot stronger is that if you give them a name, give them a background, give them motivations. Maybe they're only kind of working for this guy, you know, because they need the money but don't really like him. So if a player can, you know, the ones that always want to talk to everybody, if they can latch onto that little tidbit, then that can kind of give a slight different direction and and a, a satisfying narrative award even, like or narrative reward for yourself to go, oh, man, I made this happen because I latched onto this one personality trait of a named minion.
1: Yeah, that's one of the things that that helps uh, empower is the. the startlingly typical. I hear this story a lot of, oh, we went in, there was a bad guy and a bunch of minions and we beat most of the minions, but not all of them and then we defeated the bad guy. And then we talked to one of the minions and now he follows us around. (laughs) That's actually really... It's more common than I would have thought. (laughs) Um, But there's an advantage in making some sort of reason or motivation and even names for all these minions because who knows, they might be going on the party's next three adventures.
2: That is my wife's favorite tactic in games is to just tank her way straight to the big bad guy without taking out the minions because she feels like if she takes the leader down fast enough, then she can become the leader. And that's much more interesting. <laughs> that's just, that's
1: good. True enough. All right, so we want to do a workshop part of this. Um, and one of the things that we want to have come out of this workshop is the outline of a good, solid adventure of our own. We're going build, to build here in the room. Um, and I want to make sure that we're hitting on a lot of the things that we've already presented as being important in adventure uh, adventure length, adventure level, uh, villain, villain motivations, uh, and a setting. Um, One of the things that we ought to start with is if we're looking at an adventure, we know we've got our group. Um, Are are we looking to create an adventure that is going to span a single evening of play or just a couple or something that's going to be several months worth of play? What do you think? Hands up and... Yes, you. those are in my opinion like harder and require more finesse excellent excellent so we're going to do single night about 4 hours of play that that tells us a couple of things uh, that tells us sort of the, the not just the amount of play time but the amount of encounters that goes into that if we had somebody on our panel who's like an expert at 4 hour adventure, <laughs> oh my what do you what, what do you think structurally without any without any of the other stuff structurally what do we already know about a 4 hour adventure
2: So we know with a four hour adventure, we are probably not going to have time for more than two really big uh, combat encounters, right? Because a combat encounter is typically going to run about an hour plus or minus 15 minutes. We know that a smaller encounter uh, is probably going to run about 30 minutes. So we probably want one or two of those. And then we want a nice robust framework of story. The story has to move at a pretty good pace. So we don't wanna get too complex. If there's an investigation, that investigation is probably going to count as one of our big encounters, right? Because it's gonna eat up a lot of time as we chase the clues around. So that's kind of the structure we're gonna need to work within is roughly three kind of small 20 to 30 minute encounters and probably two big encounters that we're going to expect to take roughly an hour a piece already um what uh
1: without we don't need to be necessarily specific but what levels of groups are you looking for low medium high sort of ultra high from you know one to here
3: i'd say uh i'd say one to three would be a decent level to go for because then it's uh, more on the players themselves than their skill sets like they have to use their they have to think in order to solve through combat instead of just fireball, fireball, fireball. You know? that's, a, that's a good point. So,
1: so we, we're already thinking that this is going to be low level. Um, first, first through third level. and Maybe the adventurers have one or two like past adventures under their belt, but they're still fairly limited resources and they have to think about everything. They do. Every consumable matters yeah. that, they've, that they've gotten, that they have so far. And death is a lot
4: more likely.
0: But yeah, yeah. yes well and not only is death and you grin when you say
2: that <laughs> i grin not, a lot not only is death likely but it's a lot harder to come back from right mm-hmm. and similarly oh, sure. with any kind of negative effects that the enemy might put down if the enemy is an enemy that you know spreads disease it's going to be a lot harder for a first to third level party to get rid of the disease and it might be something they just have to live mm-hmm. with through a certain length of the adventure um so that's another thing that we now know is kind of true about this level range and how the adventure is going to move forward
1: but it also it also gives us some specifics about the about the villain we haven't picked the villain yet, but we already know some things even about the villain it's not going to be a demon lord or a or, you know king I mean we're looking at you know a, a humanoid villain might be something like a local crime boss or a bandit lord or something like that and and a uh uh, monstrous villain would be something along the lines of a level 4 to 5 monster mm-hmm. maybe. So something in the
2: giant to ogre-ish range. Giant to ogre
1: to range. owlbear range. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Anyway, maybe, so Anyway, so let's think about our villain.
0: I love the idea of the PCs having to go up against a quasit or an imp that they don't know what it is. So something that can easily hide and, and just wreak havoc upon the party um, that's masterminding the whole thing. Maybe masterminding some kobolds
1: or goblins against them.
2: Makes well, a lot not goblins mean. anymore, but yeah. oh. imp imp makes a lot of sense that's there, right. and that and that shape shifting element to the imp uh, also plays in a lot. You could you could in theory even have seen it or interacted with it before you ever actually realize what it is. So yeah.
5: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think that we're let's let's not go for the let's not necessarily go for the low-hanging fruit here. It's important to have a good villain motivation. Demons and devils have a built-in motivation of to corrupt mortals or to do wrong, but maybe that's not our imps motivation. What is our imps motivation in this adventure? Let's go there.
5: Uh all right. with the microphone. Yeah. Uh I'm thinking our imp is uh, something of an outcast or an exile from hell, trying to specifically curry enough uh, currency to get uh, either back into hell or possibly uh, buy their way into some kind of sanctuary or
1: something. Okay, all right, that's 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 pretty compelling. It it sounds to me like some of the types of types of players we've talked about. May may actually be interested in helping the imp with that when we get to the end of the adventure. Let's not not get that I would love to send you back to hell. Yes. So the the imp's trying to get something. I think before we go a lot further in what the imp is trying to get, let's consider the setting of our adventure. Because this is going to be very different if it's in a wilderness or a forest or a city. And if in a city, what kind of? I mean, there's a lot of different settings that this imp could be going about collecting its currency in. So what sort of setting do we want to have here? Let's go right there. A trading post. Ooh. <laughs> ooh. I like trading post because it's really on the outskirts of civilization. Um, it's it's you- a place where there's not a lot of ability for the, for the players to get a lot of other resources. It's sort of here's your shopping list and that's it. And right. especially when they're low level and don't have a lot to deal with.
3: And it also allows for a, a really diverse cast of NPCs Mm -hmm. because it's travelers from all sorts of different places and stuff like that. And so in that um, the imp could be kind of manipulating some of the people there to help, with its goals
2: yeah well and trade posts themselves are a type of are a type of crossroads and a type of storefront right so how what better place for you know a, a being that might be looking to trade in souls or anything else like oh you couldn't buy the gold pans and donkey you need before you head out into the mountains I can get you those, and I'm not going to charge you a single gold coin. <laughs> Are you suggesting
3: a devil at the crossroads? I mean,
2: we, have a, maybe we, we
3: don't.
1: have a different currency. That's good. Now, okay, so there's a couple of options there, but one thing I feel like we hasn't really gelled is what type of what type of scenario this is, what type of adventure we're going to have, because even in this trading post with the imp imprenting currency, it could be sort of hey, this imp's been doing bad things. Go out and crush monsters so you find out what's behind it. It could be an intrigue sort of base scenario where in fact you hardly ever, maybe in four hours, you don't even leave the trading post, right? The car- cast of characters there mm. are, are what it's all about. Um, whatever the imp's been up to could have been a mystery to be solved. So some sort of social interaction, wilderness exploration um, or a mystery type thing. If we were doing a longer adventure, we might say all a combination of these, but I think we've got to focus on just one. So, what type of adventure
2: is this? Uh, when you said trading post, the first thing that came to mind was like a Hateful Eight sort of mystery. I was literally thinking of Hateful Eight as we were talking about this adventure in well, a I have to admit, post. I don't know Hateful Eight. Give me the. Uh, so it's a it's a Tarantino flick, and it's kind of a who done it, but the answer is just about everybody, depending on what the it is. Okay. So yeah.
1: So it is, so the action's gonna take place in the trading post. Mm. We we now know we need to pay more attention than we might have in the past about the other types of unusual and or mysterious and or uh, uh, helpful characters that are here at the trading post. I think that's actually gonna be a pretty big part of our adventure. And meeting with what we've been talking about before, it sounds like that one of our two big encounters we're looking for is probably gonna be a social encounter. Yeah. Some sort of investigation to figure out what's going on here um so it seems to me we've got so we've got a good solid villain with motivation we know our level we know our length we know the scenario type we know the setting but because the npcs are going to be very critical here maybe we should have a couple that are going to play into this adventure um of various types so let's get maybe two or three npcs at this trading post that the that the heroes are going to have to interact with we'll go up up front here
4: we can always have the the kind of stereotypical um vagabond sort of character the one who sees a lot but nobody ever sees them sort of thing so they could be a a source of maybe some information or some tips on what's what sort of odd things have been happening here in the trading post
1: all right. This is the uh, the kind of kind of character that's the you're wearing the cowl in the corner of the the the, the tavern at your typical one. But at an, at an inn, it can be very fast. Let's do just one more NPC to include in. Um, let's go way back over to the back there. You, go. general store owner. The general store. What's
0: general store owner like? A couple uh, of personality tags. Uh, kind of uh, taciturn. Uh, he's he's seeing some stuff, but he's
1: grizzled old uh, grizzled old guy he's seen he's he's seen all this come and go he's been around
0: for a decade or more he
1: excellent so we've got we've got excellent so we've got people to talk to we've got a setting for them to be in we've got a villain for them to find out more about and go up against and that's I mean right there we've already put together a really good framework of a uh, I think from our perspective it's the sort of thing we could add just another couple points to and have an outline that we work with a freelancer to turn into a whole adventure yeah
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So to just kind of recap where we're at, we have a social investigation kind of encounter that is taking place in a trading post. The bad guy is an imp uh, who wants back into hell because he got booted out. Uh, And then our kind of two main NPCs that we're going to work off are our mysterious stranger type and our grizzled uh, taciturn uh, store owner. That's really compelling. Like, that is a fun story, and we can just fill out a couple details about where that fits in the game world. Uh, and we're 90% of the way through an outline. I think so. I yeah. think so.
1: so thank, thank you all. That's, uh, yeah. that's good stuff. So, with that, I think we're going to end up. So, thank you very much for uh, coming by to the workshop, and uh, happy to talk more. Yep. Thanks, everybody.
0: And that was part of No Direction's 2019 Gen Con seminar coverage in partnership with Paizo. If you'd like to find more great content like this, go to nodirectionpodcast.com. We'd like to thank our Patreon supporters for making content like this possible. If you would like to support the network and see that future content is created, you can do so at patreon.com nodirection, or click on the Patreon link at nodirectionpodcast.com.